everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. And right now I am doing my rain dance, so maybe we'll get lucky and you'll hear the sound of thunder and of raindrops pattering on the metal roof, keeping my fingers crossed. Now, in the last podcast, I told you about Circe, a new book by Madeline Miller, and talked about heroes and heroism and power and that whole constellation of concepts. And a couple people have asked me about Circe in the Odyssey. So what I want to do today is share with you my paraphrase of book 10 of the Odyssey. My paraphrase is based on Robert Fagel's translation, which has been my favorite for more than a decade, until (laughs) Emily Wilson, who is a professor of classical studies at UPenn, came out with the first English translation by a woman earlier this year. And I'm really loving uh, Wilson's translation, too. And for those of you who are interested in the differences and in particular would like to hear some very thoughtful commentary about how the male inflection of the world shows up in translation and why that matters, uh, you can track down Emily Wilson talking about this in various interviews that are posted on YouTube. So uh, just a tiny bit of background before I tell you this story. And I want to start with the etymology of Odysseus's name. The Odyssey is the story of a journey made by Odysseus. And his name in the Greek combines this the idea of being hated with weeping, with grief. So Odysseus means one who gives or brings pain and grief and one who suffers. And I find this kind of interesting because he is a trickster hero. Odysseus is called Polly, Polly this, Polly that, Polly, 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 Polly in the Greek, meaning many, many devices, many faces, many words, many tricks. Odysseus is wily and changeable. And in fact, he is related to the trickster god Hermes. His maternal grandfather, Autolocus, was a son of Hermes. And this is interesting also when you think about the Odyssey as an epic, as a a story that was essential to the ancient Greeks and has survived to this day. In fact, is a major touchstone in contemporary Western culture. Because the story was told at a time of change, and it's about a man of change. And in this context, the fact that he was the champion of the goddess Athena feels significant too. The goddess Athena was a warrior goddess, but she was also the goddess of statecraft and intellect 
and craft generally. So there's a sense here that the Greeks, in understanding their own history and so therefore then their identity as a people, are expressing the value of adaptability and ultimately even persuasion, skill as a speaker and orator as part of being a hero or a leader, not only brute force. Some of these themes are apparent when you contrast the Odyssey with its partner epic, the Iliad, which is a story that comes first that's about Achilles and the downfall of Troy. And Odysseus is in that story as well. In fact, the Odyssey is the story of Odysseus trying to get home from the Trojan War. Now, the Iliad is very much about external world and heroic action. And Odysseus's journey is really an inner journey. His adventures take place outside or beyond the known world. There are different kinds of battlefields, different battles, different adversaries. And Homer doesn't describe his psychology and provide inner dialogue. Homer doesn't use any of the tools that we're used to now when someone tells us a story and they really develop the character. There is none of that. There was none of that in what we now call literature back then. We come to understand Odysseus primarily through what he does. And in this sense, it's similar to a fairy tale and that we bring to it our reactions to what happens to him. And we find commonality with Odysseus because we ourselves understand (laughs) various forms of suffering so we can feel along with him. But there is something else. The way this story is set up, Odysseus tells us his story in the story, which creates a certain interiority and intimacy. We come to know him through his story as he himself comes to understand his journey and its effect on him by constructing the narrative and telling others. This inner quality of the Odyssey also shows itself in the feminine. The feminine in the form of goddesses, nymphs, monsters, mortal women. Uh, The feminine is essential to the movement, to the battles, the adventures, and to any of the lessons that are learned or awakenings that take place in this story. And I'm talking about the archetypal feminine, which has as one of its aspects this sense of interiority. I mean, Homer didn't put all these women in there and create this particular story in contrast to the more archetypally masculine Iliad out of any respect for women or what we would call feminism or anything. He did it because this is about otherness. (laughs) And the female, the feminine, for the Greeks was completely foreign, completely and totally foreign. 
So you could think of it as the yin and the yang. And if the Iliad is a more yang epic poem, the Odyssey is more yin. For Homer, one of the best ways to signal to the listener just how far out there in the unknown, just how unfamiliar the territory is that Odysseus is treading, is through these encounters with feminine figures in their own landscapes. And, you know, the truth that's contained there is something that we can elaborate on in our own meditations centuries later. And I think it's particularly relevant with Circe uh, because of her connection with the underworld. Anyway, let's get on with the story. So at the point that we're entering it, which as I said was book 10, Odysseus has already had a bunch of adventures and he is now uh, safe and sound for the time being anyway in the court of the Phaeacians in their land. And he is entertaining them as behooves a foreign guest and at the same time reflecting and looking back. He is, as I said a moment ago, constructing the narrative of his experience that helps him see the arc of it and begin to make some meaning of it. Then, said Odysseus, we came to the island of King Aeolus, made master of the winds by mighty Zeus. His kingdom is well protected, very wealthy, and the family is so happy. This is a place where the feasting never ends. We stayed a month, and I gave Aeolus news of Troy. And when I asked for his aid, he gave me all of the troublesome winds, bound securely in a bag, made from the skin of an ox. Only the west wind was left to blow us swiftly home. Well, we sailed for nine days and nine nights, and I manned the sail throughout without sleeping. On the tenth day, we saw the familiar shores of Ithaca. We got so close that we could smell the smoke from the fires, and I was suddenly so weary that I fell deep asleep. The men were curious about the bag. They felt certain it was full of treasure that I would not share, and jealous they opened the oxskin sack. A great squall arose and blew us back out across the water. The tumult of the winds woke me up, and when I saw what was happening, I thought of jumping overboard. I was so discouraged. But no, I hung on. The storm blew us all the way back to Aeolus's island. I went back to my friend and his feast. Odysseus, what are you doing here? They all cried. I told them that a mutinous cruel and a cruel sleep had been my undoing. King Aeolus thought for a moment. Get out, then, he said. The deathless gods must hate you, cursed man. It does not fare me well to help one like you. Get out. With heavy hearts, we rode away then, with no favoring wind. Six whole days and nights we rode without stopping. And on the seventh, we reached the land of the Restragronians. There was a fine harbor with water smooth as silk, 
walled all around with steep, skyscraping cliffs. The mouth to the harbor was narrow, and through this gap my squadron steered. All but me. I cautiously moored my ship to the cliffs outside. There was no sign of human habitation, but a wisp of smoke in the distance. So I sent three men to scout and find out who lived there. By the walls of the city they made a very large woman, who took them to the palace to meet her mother, the queen, a woman as huge as a mountain crag. She immediately called for her husband, King Antiphates. Antiphates was a giant like his wife and the rest, and he tore one of my men in two for dinner. Oh, God, it was horrible. And the other two escaped. They ran screaming for the ships with a mounting crowd of least dragonians on their heels, filling the streets and swarming the hills. These horrible giants threw huge boulders at the ships in the harbor and smashed them to bits and speared up my men like fish. Only my ship and crew survived. Sick at heart, we sailed on to the island of I.I., home of the witch Circe, the nymph with lovely braids. Quietly, we took refuge in her harbor, and for two days we rested, bone-weary and bent with pain. On the third day, I took up my sword and spear, left the ship, and found a high point to scan the island. I could just make out some smoke, and I had the thought that I should go and investigate, when hmm, I decided it was not a good idea to go by myself all alone. On my way back to the ship, some god took pity on me and sent a huge stag across my path. I killed it and took him back to the ship to my sorrowful and hungry comrades. I urged them to eat, and the meal greatly raised their spirits, and we slept once again on shore by the sea. When young Dawn, with her red rose fingers shone once more, I gathered my men and said, Look, we are completely lost. We don't even know which is west and which is east. We need a plan. I climbed a lookout yesterday and saw a plume of smoke. We will divide into two groups, one led by me and the other led by Eurolocus. We'll draw lots to see which group will go investigate. The men cried and begged me to leave off exploring. The memory of the Cyclops and the least Dragonians was very fresh in their minds, but what good was crying? We couldn't stay there forever. So we drew lots, and Yuri Locus and his group had to go. Twenty-two men in armor, weeping, and so were their companions who stayed behind with me. These men found Circe's polished stone palace in a clearing. Mountain wolves and lions roamed around the yard and doorway like dogs, bewitched into gentleness by her powerful drugs. They could hear the goddess inside at her great loom, weaving beautiful fabrics and singing in an enchanting voice. They did not know, was she a goddess or woman? And eventually decided to call out to her 
and she came at once to the door and invited them in. Only Eurylochus stayed outside, fearing a trap. All of the others took seats in high-backed chairs and drank her potion of barley and honey and wine, a potion that also contained her wicked drugs and made them lose all thought of home. Once they had drained their bowls, she struck them with her wand, and they turned into grunting pigs, outwardly pigs in every detail, including the snout, but with men's minds. And so they sobbed and squealed as she hustled them out the door and locked them outside in their sty. Eurylochus ran back to the rest of us at the ship, so terrified that he could not speak. At last, he said, there is a woman with a high, clear voice and a loom, and all of the men went into her house but me, and none of them have come back out. I gathered my weapons and told him to take me back to Circe's house, but he tearfully refused and begged us to leave right away. They are lost, he said, and I do not want to share their fate. Fine, your locus, I told him. You stay here with the ship and eat and drink in safety. I will go alone. I have to find out what happened. I headed inland through the woods. When I got near the place, I met Hermes, messengers, messenger of the gods, on the path. He appeared as a young man, a youth, and warmly shook my hand. Are you going to Circe's palace, he asked. Your men have all been turned into swine, and you won't do much better. But I will help you. Here is a magic herb to fight her spells. When she strikes you with her long wand, draw your sword and threaten her with it. She will ask you to go to bed with her then, and don't say no but insist that she first swear an oath not to harm you. And with that, he gave me the plant, black roots with a pure white flower, the plant the gods call moly, and only they can safely pluck it from the ground. And then the god Hermes was gone. I went on to the halls of the lovely Circe, with braided hair, with a very fearful heart. I shouted for her as the others had done, and she invited me in and offered me the high-backed chair and the potion. But I had eaten the plant, and her magic didn't work. Nothing happened when she struck me with her wand. I drew my sword and ran at her, as Hermes had instructed, and she screamed and dropped to the floor hugged my knees and said, Who are you? No one can withstand my potions. You are different. You must be Odysseus, the man of twists and turns. Hermes told me that you would come here one day. Now sheathe your sword and let us go to bed together and mix in the magic work of love, love that creates trust. 
wary, I said. How dare you try to seduce me when you have turned my men into swine? And how can I trust you? How can I get naked into your bed? First, you must swear a binding oath never to plot or harm me. Right away, she swore it. And so we went to bed. In the meantime, her four handmaids drew me a hot bath and set out a nice meal. Soon I was clean, my aches and pains all soothed, in fine clothes, with a carved stool beneath my feet. There was bread and wine and meat, but I could not eat, not with my men in the pigsty. Why are you so sorrowful, Odysseus, Circe asked me. Why don't you eat or drink? I've sworn not to harm you. What decent man could enjoy himself before his comrades are freed, I said. You must restore them to their original form. Well, Circe went out to the pigsty with her wand and some magic oil and turned each of them back into a man. The bristles just flew off, and each man was younger and taller and stronger and more handsome than before. The goddess was moved and bade me send for the rest of my men so that we could all be her guests. I went back to the ship and we had a tearful reunion. All of us were so glad to see each other safe. You're back, my king, they said. It's as if we'd reached Ithaca at last. Well, I told them to haul the ship on shore and store the gear and come with me to the feast at Circe's. They were all ready to come, all except Eurylochus. This is craziness, he said. That witch will turn us all into pigs or wolves or lions or worse. It'll be another deadly trap-like expedition to see the Cyclops. I was tempted to kill him. But the other men urged me to just let him stay behind, and so I calmed my anger, and in the end, he did come along, too. When we got back to her halls, Circe treated us all very kindly, so kindly that we broke down again in tears, until she said, Odysseus, that's enough weeping. I know that you've suffered. You're burned out from your journey. You're tired. But eat and drink and rest, and courage will fill your chest again. I took her advice, and so we passed the days, feasting on meat and drinking heady wine, until a year had passed. Then my men came to me and said, Captain, this is nuts. It's nice here and everything, but it's time, don't you think, to head home? They brought me back to my senses. And that night, I asked Circe to help me get back to Ithaca. You promised me long ago, I told her, and the men plead with me to leave whenever you're not around. No worries, Odysseus, she said. You don't have to stay here against your will, but before you go home, you have to make another journey. You must travel to the house of the dead and the awesome one, the goddess Persephone, to consult with the ghost of Tiresias, the blind prophet. You need his advice to get home. I was crushed at this news. I had no desire to make this trip. 
What mortal goes there and comes back alive again? I moaned and cringed in her bed. Who will guide us? How will I find the place? No one sails there by ship. Don't worry about that, Circe answered. Set your sails, and the north wind will speed you to that desolate coast and Persephone's grove of tall black poplars. Pull your vessel up onto the beach and go down to the moldering house of death and into Acheron, the flood of grief, where the river of fire meets the river of tears. When you arrive, go forward, hero, and do as I say. Dig a trench about a forearm's depth and pour out libations to the dead. Vow to make a sacrifice to them and to Tiresias when you get back to Ithaca. When you start to see the ghosts, slaughter a ram and a black ewe and say prayers to the gods. These hungry shades will crowd all around you, anxious to taste the blood. But don't let any of them near until Tiresias has appeared and answered your questions. He will tell you the way home. When dawn with her rose-red fingers shone once more, I woke the men. We must sail, I told them. Queen Circe has shown the way. Immediately they bustled round. But unfortunately, tragedy struck us again. Elpinor, who was none too bright or brave, the youngest man in our company, was sleeping off a drunk on one of the roofs where he climbed up to enjoy the cool night air. Dazed, he forgot where he was, and he fell off the roof and broke his neck. We had to leave him. There was no time to waste. I gathered the men together and gave them the grim details of our journey. We are not going home to Ithaca yet. First, Circe is sending us down to the house of the dead and the awesome one, the goddess Persephone to consult with the ghost of the dead prophet Tiresias. It was terrible news, and they took it hard. Tearing at our hair and weeping, we went back to our dark ship, where Circe, unseen by all, had left a ram and a black ewe for the sacrifice we were to make in Hades. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And if you're finding something of value in Myth in the Mojave, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs archived there, free downloads of everything new that I create, and you will play an important role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.